Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just the biggest businesses. And right now you can get a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features by going to shopify.com gold. And I'd also like to introduce and thank a brand new sponsor. Babbel's 15-minute lessons makes it the perfect way to really learn a new language on the go. When you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, now you can get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use the promo code GOLD. Stocks went on a roller coaster ride on Thursday and Friday. Of course, the biggest moves were reserved for the NASDAQ. And of course, within the NASDAQ, it was the most overpriced and highly speculative stocks that went on the wildest ride. And it got started on Wednesday night. In fact, I spoke about it on the podcast I recorded on Wednesday evening when Meta, formerly known as Facebook, came out with disappointing earnings, and Meta was down about 20% in after-hours trading, and it dragged the entire NASDAQ down about 2% at that time. Well, it was even worse when they rang the opening bell on Thursday. Meta shares ended up down 26.6% on the day. In fact, they sold off an additional one-third of 1% on Friday, Although well off the lows, at one point, Meta was down about 3% on Friday, bringing the entire decline from its peak to 40%, which is a pretty big move, solidly in bear market territory. But when you think about the fact that Meta is one of the most widely held stocks among both individuals and institutions, you get an idea of how much damage is being done to the typical stock portfolio. In addition to Meta falling more on Thursday than the Wednesday evening decline, the entire NASDAQ 
also went down. It fell about 4%, which is a huge move for that index in a single day. And again, the riskier end of the spectrum getting beaten up even more. Look at the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation ETF. That was down 5.6%. Of course, many of the stocks down even more than that. Some of the biggest movers were stocks that were coming out with earnings after the bell on Thursday because the markets were bracing for more misses. So Amazon, Snap, and Pinterest in particular were getting hit pretty hard. Amazon was down 7.8%. Pinterest was down 10.3%. And Snapchat was down 23.6% because investors were worried that if they also reported bad earnings like Facebook, that those stocks would get clobbered. Well, everybody was set up for misses And what the market did was surprised everybody because all three of those stocks ended up beating expectations and that resulted in a sharp reversal in those names which also helped to power the entire NASDAQ up which rose about 1.4% on Friday. So not nearly recouping the 4% Thursday loss but those individual stocks did. In fact, Amazon was up 13.5% on the day, Pinterest up 11% and Snap rose by a staggering 59%. And I think what helped to power those gains was the fact that people may have gotten short in anticipation of a Facebook style blow up. And when that didn't happen, they had to rush to cover. And so that likely exaggerated the size of these moves. Again, I think these stocks are all headed lower I don't think the earnings matter as much right now as valuation. All of these stocks are overvalued, and I think they're going much lower. Of course, there were some other stocks that did move lower on Friday on bad earnings. Two in particular that I want to highlight are Clorox and Ford. Clorox was down 14.5%. Big decline, new 52-week low. That stock is now down about 30% from its 52-week high. The reason for the decline was an earnings miss, and the reason for the miss was inflation. Inflation was driving up the cost of their products. They hadn't fully passed on those higher costs to their customers, which was certainly the case for a lot of companies last year that were lulled into a false sense of security because they believed the Fed, that inflation was transitory, so they didn't raise prices, and now they're paying the price in weaker earnings and falling stock prices. But of course, what is Clorox going to be doing? They're going to be raising prices. They didn't really discuss that, but it's certainly going to happen. They have to defend their margins. They need to start raising prices And that's what's going to happen. Now, as far as the stock is concerned, even though it's dropped considerably, looking at Clorox, I think the valuation is still too high on the stock. It's trading at about 26 times earnings, which I think is rich for that type of company if you compare it to its peers. Certainly, if you compare it to the companies that I own that operate in that space, the stock is expensive. I think if it fell to below 20 times earnings, the stock might look interesting. That would be about $100 a share or less 
Right now, it's 141. If the stock does go down to $100 a share, it would represent about a 50% decline from its peak. And, you know, by the way, Clorox was another one of those COVID winners. One of the reasons it rose so much in 2020 was because everybody was cleaning stuff and sterilizing and bleaching things because they were afraid of getting COVID. And so that drove some extra sales of Clorox, which helped the stock get way ahead of itself as a lot of people just bought into it the way they bought into so many stocks that were temporarily benefiting from COVID, investors were acting as if those temporary benefits were permanent. And of course, they were not. The other stock that got beaten up on Friday on weak earnings was Ford. Shares of Ford were down 9.7% on the day. And that stock too is now down about 30% from its peak. But I don't really think the problem with Ford is a valuation problem. I think it really reflects underlying weakness in the U.S. economy. I think fewer and fewer Americans are going to be able to afford to buy new cars. I mean, fewer and fewer Americans can afford to buy used cars. So I think you're going to see a lot of problems, both for Ford and GM domestically, as U.S. customers are priced out of the new car market. Plus, a lot of people already bought new cars, They took advantage of artificially low interest rates, cheap financing to buy cars. And a lot of these buyers took out long-term loans. People are buying cars and they're using five or six-year loans to do it. And so it's taking people a long time to repay their car loans, which means it's going to take a long time before they can afford to replace their existing car with a new car. And all of that bodes ill for the profits of domestic car companies. But the biggest move was not in the stock market, but in the cryptocurrency market. We saw a huge rise on Friday in Bitcoin. In fact, as I am speaking, Bitcoin has recovered the 40,000 handle. In fact, it's above 41,000. 41,500 is about where Bitcoin is trading as I am recording this podcast on Saturday morning. If you look at shares of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust that dropped 3.5% on Thursday, along with other risk assets, it exploded higher by 13.5% on Friday to the joy of the Bitcoin hodlers who are now convinced that the low is in and now we're off to the moon again, which of course is exactly what the rally is designed to do. I think this is a sucker rally orchestrated to create a false sense of hope to sucker in some more buyers so that other people can continue to unload these overvalued crypto tokens. And so I don't expect this 40,000 level to hold. In fact, this may be the last time that Bitcoin trades above 40,000. We'll see. But if I'm correct that the air is coming out of all these speculative bubbles, it certainly includes cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin because that's the most speculative bubble of them all. But, you know, I think the most significant market moves on Friday were in the bond market and the oil market. That's where investors should really be concerned. Bond yields really spiked on Friday. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is now at 1.93%. This is the highest it's been of this move. 30-year Treasury is yielding now 2.23%. Big spike up in yields on Friday, down in price. 
This should be problematic, not because the yields are high, but because they're rising. And the scary part for investors should not be how much they've already risen in the past, but how much room there still is for yields to rise in the future and how vulnerable both U.S. stocks and the U.S. economy are to this rise in rates. And part of the reason for the rise in rates is increasing inflation. Look at what happened to the price of oil. Shot up another couple of bucks on Friday. We closed at $92.30 a barrel. That's a new high for the move. Last time oil prices were this high was over seven years ago. In fact, the intraday high on Friday was $93.17. Oil finished the week up 2.25%. We're already up 23% on the year. And this is just the end of the first week in February. In fact, oil prices were strong last year, but not this strong. In the first five weeks of 2021, the price of oil ended the first week of February up 18% on the year. So we're already starting out stronger in 2022 than we started in 2021, which seems to support what I've been saying all along, that 2022 inflation is actually going to be worse than 2021. The Fed is hanging its hat on the fact that it thinks the inflation rate will come down, that the supply shortages are going to dissipate, and that the bottlenecks are going to unclog. And so there's not going to be as much inflation in 2022 as there was in 2021. The reality is there's going to be more. In fact, think about how much room there is for the price of oil to rise. Just look at that chart. There is nothing but blue skies above the current price. In fact, looking at the long-term chart of oil, the price peaked back in July of 2008 at just under $150 a barrel. But think about what was going on in July of 2008. The U.S. dollar index was at 73. You had a very weak dollar, which meant even though oil was really expensive for Americans, it wasn't nearly as expensive for foreigners who were able to take advantage of the cheap dollar. So in their own currencies, it wasn't as big a deal as it was in the U.S., although the prices were still high. I'm not saying they weren't high in Europe or Asia. They were just not nearly as high as they were in America. Also, look at where the discount rate was. In 2008, that summer, the discount rate was at six and a quarter, which was the high for that cycle. Today, the discount rate stands at 0.25%, the low of the cycle. That is a huge difference. And also, the dollar index is above 95. We have a much higher dollar than we did back in 2008. My point is that the dollar has a lot of room to fall and interest rates have a lot of room to rise before we may break the back of the oil bull market. And of course, what really helped break the back of that bull market in the summer of 2008 was the 2008 financial crisis. That's what really sent the price of oil crashing. Plus, the 2008 financial crisis sent the value of the dollar soaring as everybody rushed into dollars during that crisis. And so that really brought the price of oil down. But that's not going to happen. Not for a while, anyway. I think that as the Fed starts to raise interest rates, 
They're not going to come near six and a quarter percent. We're not going to get rates nearly high enough to start to impact the demand for oil or bend the inflation curve. And the dollar has a long way to fall. And as it falls, that's going to put upward pressure on oil prices. So if the price of oil could peak at $150 a barrel with a six and a quarter percent Fed funds rate and a 95 DXY, where's it going to peak this time? I think we could easily get a peak close to $300 a barrel for the price of oil. Right now, we're not even 100, so that's a tripling in the price of the oil. How long will that take? I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll peak out in 2028. That's another six years from now. But that would be a doubling in the price of oil from peak to peak over a 20-year period. Oil peaking at 150 in 2008 and then peaking again at 300 in 2028. That doesn't seem like too absurd a price move, a doubling in price over a 20-year period, especially considering all of the money that would have been printed over those 20 years. In fact, it's possible that the price of oil goes even higher than $300 a barrel during that time frame. But what does that mean? Well, that means that gasoline is going to be more than $10 a gallon. I mean, right now it's probably about $3.5 a gallon, maybe four in some parts of the country. But imagine the U.S. economy when people are paying $10 a gallon for gas. And of course, they're going to be paying a lot more money for a lot more things It's not just going to be energy prices that are going up. The entire cost of living is going way up. And that is the big problem. And it would be an even bigger problem for the bond market if investors really understood what was going on, because they clearly don't. The price of gold was up about two and a half dollars on Friday, but it wasn't way up. And in fact, initially, When we got the jobs report, and I'm going to get to that shortly, but when we got the jobs report, which came in stronger than expected, the gold price initially sold off, which is basically what's been happening every time we get stronger than expected economic data, you get a sell-off in the price of gold because traders react to that news by bracing for higher interest rates because anything that suggests a stronger economy also suggests that the Fed is going to be more likely to have a tighter monetary policy, raise rates more than expected, shrink the balance sheet sooner than expected. And so that's always been negative for gold. But what these traders still don't understand is that it doesn't matter if the Fed raises rates because it's not going to raise them enough. Inflation is going to get worse no matter what the Fed does because the Fed doesn't have the political will to actually raise rates high enough to fight inflation. Now, it has to at least raise them a little. It has to at least pretend that it's going to fight inflation, especially when inflation is such a big problem. So the markets are bracing for the fight. What they're not bracing for is that the Fed is going to lose the fight that inflation is going to win. If investors understood that, the price of gold would be skyrocketing. In fact, bond prices would be even weaker if investors understood that. Yes, investors are now pricing in higher rates into the bond market, and that is pressuring bond prices down. But if they were going to factor in the massive loss of purchasing power of the U.S. dollars in which those bonds are denominated 
bond prices would be crashing. They wouldn't just be going down. And eventually, that is what's going to happen. Investors are going to understand that inflation is going to get worse and that these nominal rate hikes that the Fed is going to deliver are not going to do anything to slow it down, that real rates are actually going to be falling because the Fed is going to get further and further behind the inflation curve. And eventually, the rate hikes that the Fed is delivering, in addition to the pain of higher prices, they are going to slow the economy. They are going to push the economy into recession, and that is going to cause the Fed to do an about-face and ignore the fact that inflation is getting worse and concentrate on the fact that the economy is also getting worse and may in fact be in recession and they will pour even more gasoline on the inflation fire because they think the economy needs that gasoline to run faster. The other big mover on the week was the U.S. dollar. Dollar index was down about 2%, closed at 95.48. Now, the main driver of dollar weakness was euro strength. In fact, the dollar did manage to rise against a number of other currencies, but it got smacked against the euro. Euro rose 2.7% on the week. Most of those gains took place Thursday and Friday. And I mentioned the possibility of this on my Wednesday podcast because I mentioned that the ECB was having its press conference on Thursday. It was going to announce its decision on interest rates. And of course, as I said, it left rates unchanged pretty much at zero. But what spooked the markets and caused the rally in the euro was the fact that Christine Lagarde actually acknowledged that inflation is a problem. She admitted that the risks to inflation are to the upside. So the ECB is no longer worried that inflation will be too low. They're worried that it will be too high. Well, a little bit too late for that. Talk about trying to close the barn doors after the horses have left. I mentioned on my last podcast that the CPI was up 5.1% in the Eurozone last year way above that 2% target. And again, 2% wasn't their target. It was close to, but below 2%. And as I mentioned on my last podcast, think about how crazy it was for the ECB to claim that 1.7 or 1.8% wasn't close enough to 2 that the ECB had to aim for 1.9, and then they overshot by so much, they're at 5.1. Think about how difficult it's going to be to get the inflation rate back down below 2% when you're above 5%. The ECB should have left well enough alone when it was below 2%, not claiming it wasn't close enough to 2% to meet their mandate. Again, it was all BS at the time. I mentioned it. Lagarde was simply trying to justify the cheap monetary policy. Well, there is no longer any justification for this policy. And so ultimately, the policy is going to be reversed and the markets are bracing for that. In fact, a lot of people were referring to her comments as being hawkish. I mean, there was nothing hawkish about acknowledging this massive problem. Lagarde is still a dove. No question about it. If she were a hawk, they would already be hiking rates. They would already be ending their QE program. Instead, the program is continuing in the face of all this inflation. So she is not a hawk. There are no hawks anywhere in the central banks. There's just doves. But yes, Lagarde is now somewhat less dovish than she was in the past. And that is the problem, at least the problem for 
the dollar, it's a good thing for the euro because the euro is going to rise. And I think this rise in the euro has legs. It's going to continue and it's going to be very problematic for the U.S. stock market and for the U.S. economy because really what's been powering the U.S. has been the strength of the dollar. And it's only been strong because it's been the cleanest dirty shirt in the hamper. Well, it's not going to be the cleanest shirt in the hamper. It never really was. But now people are going to realize that. I think more people are going to prefer the euro to the dollar. Sure, the Fed may be tightening, but the ECB is likely to continue its tightening campaign even longer. I think the Fed is going to give up before the ECB does. And therefore, the relative interest rate advantage, especially when you look at real rates, is going to favor the euro over the U.S. dollar. Ka-ching! You got to love that sound. That's the sound of another sale happening on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving all entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just the biggest businesses. And it's customized for you with a great looking online store that brings your idea to life and gives you the tools to manage and drive your sales. Making your ideas real opens endless possibilities. I really love how Shopify makes it easy for anyone to successfully run their own business. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs from their first sale up to full scale. And every 28 seconds, another small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. So get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience. You can access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive your sales, and then manage your day-to-day. You can gain the knowledge and the confidence and the resources to help you succeed. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. It's more than just a store. Shopify grows with you. That's the possibility, and it's powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com slash gold right now, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. So start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash gold right now. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Of course, the biggest news story on Friday was the January jobs report from the U.S. Labor Department. Now, on my last podcast, I mentioned the ADP report that came out Wednesday at minus 301,000 jobs. So a big loss, a big miss on that number. And so that kind of set the tone because traders were bracing for a miss on the official government report as well 
Well, again, just like all those traders that were bracing for an earnings miss from Amazon and Pinterest and Snapchat, the market once again confounded those expectations and we ended up blowing away the consensus forecast only to the upside. Markets were looking for a gain of 150,000 jobs in January. Instead, we added 467,000 jobs, a huge beat, way ahead of even the highest estimate on the street, which I think was for plus 280,000. There was actually minus 400,000 was the lower end of the consensus. And in fact, they went back and revised up the prior month. December had been originally reported at just 199,000 jobs added, which was lower than what was expected at the time. Well, now that was revised up as well. 510,000 jobs is what the government now claims were added in the month of December. So a big beat on that number. Private payrolls also way up. They were supposed to rise 150,000. They rose by 444,000. And the prior month was revised from up 211,000 to up 503,000. The only disappointment was manufacturing figures. We were supposed to gain 19,000 jobs there. Instead, we only gained 13,000, although there was an upward revision to the December number, originally reported as plus 26,000. It was revised to plus 32,000, so really about a push there. But we did have a big increase in the labor force participation rate. That rose from 61.9 to 62.2. In fact, it was expected to decline to 61.8, but that is a big increase, three-tenths of 1%. Doesn't really make sense because... We only created 467,000 jobs for all of those people who entered the labor force, yet the unemployment rate only notched up from 3.9% to 4%. If we really have so many new people in the labor market, it stands to reason that more of them would be unemployed if only 467,000 found jobs. But I think there's a lot more to this number than meets the eye. I mean, first of all, I think the big problem for the markets was not the headline, but what lied beneath. Because if you listen to a lot of the reporters who were talking about the collapse in the bond market, they blamed it on this big beat in the jobs numbers. I don't think it's the headline because I think a lot of people understand that this is just a bunch of noise. What I think they're worried about are the average hourly earnings. In other words, inflation, average hourly earnings were supposed to rise by 0.5. Instead, they increased by 0.7. Now, the prior months was slightly revised down from the original estimate of an increase of 0.6 to up 0.5. But that doesn't matter because look at the year-over-year number. The consensus was for year-over-year average hourly earnings to rise by 5.2%. Instead, they shot up by 5.7%. And that compares to a 5% increase year-over-year in the prior period, which was upwardly revised from 4.7%. So the wage pressures are even stronger than the markets thought. And in fact, if you look at the average hours worked, that actually went down from 34.7 in the prior month 
to 34.5. So in other words, workers are working fewer hours, but they're being paid more for the hours they work. That means their employers are getting less output because people aren't working as hard, but they're having to pay more money to get that output. So less stuff being produced, but more expensive labor costs to produce it. Obviously, consumer prices are headed up, and that is what is pushing down the bond market. That and the rising oil price that I already discussed, not the beat in the headline number. In fact, if you really take a look at the reason for that big number, it's all due to seasonal adjustments. It's not that the economy was so strong. It's that the seasonal adjustments were so big. In fact, if you look at all the adjustments that were made to the numbers from 2021, not just the revisions to December, they had revisions for the entire year. And on balance, they ended up subtracting 244,000 jobs from what we were originally told were created last year. It so happens that a lot of the upward revisions were for the later months of the year and the downward revisions were for the earlier months of the year. So in the beginning of the year, the labor market was not as strong as the government was telling us. And at the end of the year, it wasn't quite as weak as the government was telling us. But on balance, there was a net reduction in jobs. So this huge beat was a result of seasonal adjustments. In fact, the upward seasonal adjustment to the jobs report that we just got is by far the biggest upward seasonal adjustment ever to the month of January if the seasonal adjustment was normal, right? What it would normally be for a typical January, the job number would have come in at 166,000 instead of 467,000. So much closer to the 150,000 number that had been estimated. So in other words, this jobs report didn't reveal strength in the labor market, but it did reveal strength in inflation. It showed that the pricing pressures that we had in 2021 are continuing in 2022, and businesses are going to be under increasing pressure to raise prices in 2022, even more so than in 2021. Whether it's saving more and spending less, getting organized or losing weight, there's a lot of worthwhile goals to set for yourselves this year. And one that's been at the top of my list for a while is learning Spanish, especially since I live in Puerto Rico. And with Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, I may actually be able to pull it off. Learning a new language doesn't have to be tedious. It can be fun and engaging. The whole Babbel process is addictively fun, fast, and easy. Babbel teaches you bite-sized language lessons for real-world use. I just started using it myself, and it's a breeze. Other language learning labs use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel's lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching methods have been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and your accent. Everything is voiced by real native speakers, so you can hear nuances and even learn slang. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, video stories, and even live classes. 
Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. And right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you're going to get an additional three months for free. That's six months of Babbel for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use the promo code GOLD. That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com and use the promo code GOLD. That's Babbel, language for life. I spoke earlier about the big increase in Amazon shares because Amazon beat its numbers. Well, Amazon also announced a price increase. If you want to be an Amazon Prime member, the cost is now 17% higher than it was last year. That is an indication of what is going on with prices, a 17% hike. Amazon is not done hiking. Amazon Prime membership costs are going to go up every year. In fact, they might have another hike before the end of this year. Who knows? But this is a good indication of things to come for consumers. And of course, this is very problematic for the Fed. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, gold initially sold off after this report came out. And sure, we didn't have a big rally. We were up two and a half bucks or so. We closed, I think, around 1809 an ounce. But what's significant is that gold didn't stay down and that it didn't sell off even more because all last year, gold was getting hammered on stronger than expected jobs numbers. Now it's not. So either it's because the markets realized that the number wasn't strong, or more importantly, the markets do realize that the inflation numbers were very strong. The bond market got killed. And what had been happening in the past is weakness in the bond market was dragging down the gold market. Gold didn't get dragged down in the wake of collapsing bonds. And what I've been pointing out the entire time is that inflation weakens bonds. Inflation strengthens gold. So they are very different assets when it comes to inflation. They may both be perceived as stable stores of value, risk off, places that people turn to in times of panic. Maybe people buy treasuries or they buy gold as a safe haven. But I've always pointed out there is a huge difference if what you're afraid of is inflation because there is no safety in bonds when it comes to inflation because when it comes to inflation, it's the bonds that are the most vulnerable. Gold is a hedge against inflation and maybe we're starting to see the beginning of that divergence. Traders are finally starting to wake up. So right now, gold is not going down when we get this inflation data, but eventually it's going to go way up. When again, as I mentioned earlier, traders stop focusing on the fact that the Fed is going to fight inflation and start focusing on the fact that the Fed is going to lose that fight and that inflation is going to win. But another winner from inflation is going to be stocks. People are going to be buying stocks as a hedge against inflation, except they're not going to be buying the same types of stocks they were buying when they weren't worried about inflation and they had no inflation to hedge. This is the rotation that I've been talking about out of the momentum stocks, out of these hyped up high flying stocks into traditional value, low PE, high dividend paying companies that actually make stuff where they have pricing power and they can deliver those earnings to their shareholders right now 
in the form of dividends, not betting on the calm, not earnings that may or may not materialize many, many years in the future, but earnings that are already here right now and that can keep their shareholders ahead of inflation. And in fact, bigger than just the transition out of growth into value is going to be the transition out of U.S. stocks into foreign stocks. Because of course, it's the rest of the world that has all the value stocks. The U.S. market has been dominated by these overpriced momentum names, all these big tech stocks like Facebook that is now down 40% from its peak. But there's a whole lot of stocks similar to to Meta that are going to be going down. Investors are going to be using these stocks as a source of funds, and they're going to be moving into other stocks that represent much better investment value and inflation hedges. Now, a lot of people think, well, that can't happen. If the U.S. market is going down, it's going to drag the whole world down with it. Everything is trading in lockstep. And that's not going to happen. I think what we're going to see with the U.S. stock market vis-a-vis the rest of the world is something similar to what we saw with the Nikkei in its spectacular boom and bust that also didn't drag down the entire world. I mean, look at the move that we had in the Nikkei. In 1950, the Nikkei was at 100. And 40 years later, 1989, approximately 40 years, the index was at 35,000. <laughs> That's a 350-fold increase in 39 years. Just massive. But it's actually bigger if you price it in U.S. dollars because in 1950, you got 360 yen to the dollar. And in 1989, it was about 130. So you almost had a triple in the value of the yen as you got a 350x increase in the value of the Nikkei. So if you combine the two, that's 1,000 times. So to put that in perspective, if you invested $1,000 in the Nikkei in 1950, by 1989, that $1,000 was worth $1 million. That is an enormous increase. I mean, that's kind of like a Bitcoin kind of move, 1,000 to 1 million. In contrast, what happened to the Dow during that period of time? Well, in 1950, the Dow Jones was at 200, and in 1989, it was at 2,700, 13 and a half times. That's still a decent increase, but it pales in comparison to the 1,000x that you got in Japanese stocks. So an American investor over that 39-year period turned $1,000 into $13,500, where if the same American put his $1,000 into Japanese stocks, he turned it into $1 million. Of course, I'm not counting dividends. I'm just looking at price. So the actual returns were much greater if those dividends were taken into account, especially if they were reinvested. So a huge boom that ended up in a spectacular bubble In fact, if you look at the tail end of that move, in 1982, the Nikkei was at 7,000. And in 1989, six years later, it was at 35,000. So that was the peak of the bubble. And then the market collapsed. The Nikkei didn't bottom out for another 20 years. It was in 2009, following the 2008 financial crisis, that's the year the Nikkei finally bottomed. And it was 77% lower than it was 20 years earlier. 
So if you just bought and hold, if you were buying the dips in the Nikkei because it had been a bull market, think about the severity of those losses over a 20-year period. In fact, as of now, today, the Nikkei is still below where it was in 1989. I think it's around 29,000-ish right now. So it's been over 30 years and the market is still down. I think we can see something similar in the U.S., certainly in real terms, and if not for the Dow Jones, for the NASDAQ. I think the NASDAQ is the Nikkei of this bull market, and I think it's going to experience a similar type of decline, certainly relative to the rest of the world, because as the air was coming out of the Japanese stock bubble, investors just started buying other stocks that represented better investment value than the ones that they were selling in Japan. And I think the same thing is going to happen in the U.S. Investors are not just going to dump U.S. stocks and hold on to cash, especially in an inflationary environment where cash is trash. You have to do something with that cash. And so you're just going to move it to better valued stocks. The U.S. stock market was really the only game in town Since 1989, the Dow Jones is up 13x, the NASDAQ 14x, and the Nikkei is down 17%. Plus, the gains in the U.S. were heavily concentrated during the last decade, a decade where stocks in the rest of the world basically traded sideways. So U.S. stocks are the most over-owned, they're the most overpriced, and they have the most downside risk. And you're going to see all of this money moving out of those stocks into other stocks in Europe, in Asia, value, dividend-paying stocks, emerging markets, stocks that are linked to commodities that benefit from inflation. And I think these trends are going to go on not just for years, but potentially for decades. And we're still early in this transition. Most people still don't realize that the game has changed. They're still playing the old game. They have no idea what the rules are for the new game. That's what I'm trying to explain. Sure, I was early in my forecast. I've been telling people to prepare for this game for several years. Well, now it's here. And the fact that we're prepared means we're in really good shape. The good news for the people who haven't followed my advice yet is it's not too late. And it's pretty obvious based on what's happened that the advice was sound and you have plenty of time to get rid of overpriced U.S. stocks, to sell your overvalued U.S. dollars, and to create a portfolio of foreign value dividend-paying stocks to get exposure to emerging markets, to commodities. So make sure to contact your representative from Euro-Pacific Capital, from Euro-Pacific Asset Management. Take a look at my mutual funds. Don't just take a look at them, buy them. Read the prospectuses, understand the risks, but also understand the greater risks of not getting into those funds, of sticking with the U.S. stock market, of staying with the U.S. bond market, of staying with the U.S. dollar. That's where the risk is. And if you want to avoid those risks, you got to get out of those assets and you got to get into something else that can deliver a much better return, especially adjusted for inflation. I want to change gears, though, and finish up the podcast by talking a little football. I mean, there's no football this weekend unless you're going to count the Pro Bowl that they play tomorrow. The real football game is coming up a week from Sunday, the Super Bowl, between the Bengals and the Rams. But there are two big football stories during the week. 
One being a lawsuit filed by Brian Flores, who is the former head coach for the Miami Dolphins. He is suing the Miami Dolphins for, among other things, racial discrimination. In other words, Flores is claiming that one of the reasons, and maybe the reason, I don't know, that he was terminated from the Dolphins is because he happens to be black. He was one of only two black head coaches in the NFL. So now there's only one left. That's Mike Tomlin, who's the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. But not only is Flores suing the Dolphins for firing him, he's also suing the New York Giants and the Denver Broncos for not hiring him because he interviewed with both of those franchises, but neither one gave him the job. So these two teams are also being sued, as is the NFL itself, as apparently the entire league is supposedly guilty of racial discrimination. Despite the fact that 70% of the NFL players are black. Remember, only 13% of the population in general is black, yet 70% of NFL players are black. Clearly, there's no discrimination going on there. Now, some people might say, well, it's not fair to compare the percentage of black NFL players to the overall population because maybe blacks on average tend to play football more than whites. I don't know if that's true or not, but if you compare it to college football, 43% of college players are black, 47% of Division I college players are black. So that's basically where these professional teams are drawing from. That's the pool. And if 47% of the potential players that could be drafted are black, yet 70% of the players that end up being drafted are black. Clearly, the NFL is not discriminating against black athletes when it's more likely to hire black athletes than white athletes. But no, apparently, according to Brian Flores and a lot of other people for that matter, the fact that only one head coach is black, well, that proves that the NFL is racist because If they weren't racist, there would be more black coaches. Well, you can't draw any conclusions just looking at numbers. If you could, then you would have to conclude that the reason that there are no black place kickers or black punters in the NFL is because the coaches and the owners are racist and they refuse to hire black kickers or punters. But clearly that would be ridiculous. Why would they do that? If they're hiring the best quarterbacks, if they're hiring the best running backs, the best wide receivers, and they don't care what color they are, they just care how good they are, why would they not care about their punters and their place kickers? I mean, those guys are important. You can win and lose games with a missed field goal or a missed extra point. And sometimes special teams, you know, you get a good punt and you really back the other team up. These are important players, clearly, NFL owners and coaches want to hire the best punters and kickers. And if there were quality black kickers out there, they'd get drafted. They'd be hired. There's no question that they would be. Now, the question is, why aren't they there? Well, I don't even think it matters. The fact of the matter is they're not there. The best kickers and punters happen to be white. And so that's who the teams are hiring. That's not the case with other positions. There are plenty of great black running backs and wide receivers, and so they're getting hired. Now, you could try to come up with reasons why there's no black kickers or punters. You know, ironically, one of the only 
black punters in the history of the league, and he happened to be one of the best punters ever, was a guy named Reggie Roby, who unfortunately, the guy died a couple of years ago, very young, 43 years of age, had a heart attack, but he played 16 years for the NFL, nine of those years with the Miami Dolphins. In fact, the Miami Dolphins drafted him out of college. So how racist were they if they drafted a black punter? Now, obviously, I think it was a different owner back then, a different coach, but still it's the same culture. And I just think it's kind of ironic that the Dolphins were the ones that had Roby. But to try to think about why there aren't more black punters and kickers, because it's clearly not because they're not athletic enough to be able to kick the ball. Clearly they could. It's just that they don't do it. And I think there's two reasons for that, although there could be more. I think one is that a lot of these kickers have a soccer background. And so there's probably not as many black kids playing soccer as there are white kids. So if you're taking your kickers from soccer, you're more likely to have white kickers. But I think another reason is that these punters and kickers, you know, they start in high school and a lot of the more athletic football players, they don't want to be punters. I mean, they want to be the quarterback or the wide receiver, the running back. They want to score touchdowns, right? That's where you get the glory. That's where you get the girls. You know, you don't have a bunch of head cheerleaders out there bragging about how they're dating the punter, right? So the punter is not where people aspire. And these guys, you know, they don't even make that much money. Who becomes the punter? It's the guy that's not good enough to play any other position. So a lot of times, that's the white kid. He's not fast enough. He's not strong enough. He doesn't have the skills, but he wants to be on the team. So he settles for punter. And so he punts all through high school, and then he punts all through college, and now he gets drafted. Some of the black players who were better athletes, who were running backs, They were probably not quite good enough to make it in the NFL. They were good enough to play in college, but they weren't good enough to play in the NFL. But now they can't just start punting. I mean, maybe if they would have started out as a punter in high school, they could have been drafted and they could have been a punter, but they spent their time as a running back. And so they couldn't catch up with all the years of experience that these white punters and kickers had because they weren't good enough at an earlier age to play the other positions. That's probably the reality. It's got nothing to do with race. And the same thing with coaching. The fact that there's only one black head coach, although there was two until Flores was fired, the fact that there's now one has nothing to do with race. The owners want to win. And just like they hire the best players They hire the best coaches. Now, maybe you want to try to argue that, well, the coaches, they can't afford to be racist when it comes to hiring players because there it's really important to have the best people for the job. And so you have to hire the black players, but maybe that's not the case with coaches. I mean, anybody can coach. It doesn't really make a difference. So you might as well just give those jobs to the white guys, except that's sheer nonsense. There's no way that that can be true. The average head coach in NFL makes $8 million a year. Of course, some make more. I think Belichick on the Patriots is the highest paid. I think he gets about $12 million a year. So there are some guys making three or $4 million a year to average it out. But still, that's a lot more than the average player is paid. I think the average is 900000 a year. Of course, you have some really high-paid guys, Patrick Mahomes, the quarterbacks that are making $30, 40000000 million a year, right? But they 
average up a lot of other players that are just making a few hundred thousand a year when they just get started in their rookie season, their first few seasons, a lot of linemen. My point is that on average, the coaches are much more highly paid than the players. Now, the owners, they're not throwing their money away. Why are they paying $8 million a year if it doesn't matter who the head coach is? As a matter of fact, there are plenty of people coaching football. Look at all the high school football coaches. You know what the average high school football coach makes? $35,000 a year. I'm sure a lot of those guys would love to take some of these NFL coaching jobs, and they do it for a lot less than $8 million. If it doesn't make a difference who the coach is, you just give out the jobs to any white guy that applies Why not just pick one of these high school coaches? I'm sure plenty of those guys are white and you could pay them maybe a hundred grand a year and you'd have a long line of applicants. Obviously, the reason is the coaches that are getting paid $8 million are clearly much better at the job. They are the cream of the crop. These are the guys that are most likely to deliver the winning season or the Super Bowl ring. And so that's why they're getting paid all this money. And if you're paying a coach $8 million a year, you're going to make damn sure you've got the best coach money can buy. And you're not going to care what color that coach is because the only color you see is green. And another example of the Miami Dolphins not being racist and hiring who they thought was the best person for the job was the 2019 draft. Their number one draft pick was Tua Tagliovia. Black guy. I mean, Technically, yeah, he's not African. He's Samoan, but he's very dark. I mean, take a look at a photograph of Tua. He's got black skin, right? So if the Dolphins are so racist, why did they draft him? Why didn't they just pick Justin Hebert, who's a white guy and who is a much better quarterback? He's not a better quarterback because he's white. He's just a better quarterback. Why didn't they pick him if they're so racist? It's because they thought Tua was the better quarterback. And again, they didn't care what color his arm was. They cared about how good his arm was, and they thought he had a better arm than Hebert. They were wrong. They should have taken the white quarterback, but they took the black quarterback, which should show you that they're not racist. They took who they thought was the best player. And when they hired Brian Flores to be the head coach, there were probably plenty of white coaches who wanted the job that they could have hired, but they hired Flores even though he was black. Why? Because obviously the Dolphins thought Flores was the best man for the job when they hired him. And when they fired him because they didn't think he was the best man for the job, again, it had absolutely nothing to do with race. Now, there could be some other aspects of this lawsuit that may have merit. I'm not saying that there's no merit to anything in there. One of the things that Flores is alleging is that Stephen Ross, who is the owner of the Miami Dolphins, offered to pay him $100,000 for every game that he lost. He was deliberately trying to get the Dolphins to tank so that they could draft Tua. Now, of course, they really should have been trying to draft Joe Burrow, who is going to be playing in the Super Bowl. But at the time, they were talking about tanking for Tua, and they ended up with Tua anyway. But they had an opportunity to take Hebert, but they didn't. But the fact that Ross was trying to pay Flores to lose and the fact that Flores didn't want to do that 
because maybe he has too much respect for the game. He's too ethical to deliberately lose. I mean, I'm not really sure about what the NFL rules are when it comes to losing on purpose. But to me, it seems like they certainly violate the spirit of the whole draft system that is aimed to try to level the playing fields by helping to strengthen the weakest teams because the worse your record is, the better your draft choice. So if you're the worst team in the league, you get the number one draft choice to help improve the team. And that's why the Bengals are in the Super Bowl. I mean, they were the worst team a couple of years ago, and here they are in the Super Bowl because they had the number one draft pick. So if you're throwing games on purpose, it kind of defeats the whole purpose of what the draft is trying to do. So there may be some aspects of this lawsuit that have merit, but it's got nothing to do with race. I don't think the fact that Stephen Ross offered to bribe Brian Flores had anything to do with the fact that Brian Flores was black. He might have offered him the same bribe if he was white. In fact, there were seven head coaches that have already been fired this year. I mean, it's typical. The season is over. Owners reevaluate where their teams are and heads roll if you didn't have a great season. I mean, the Dolphins had a winning season eight and seven, but they didn't make the playoffs. I mean, that's not exciting. People want their team to make the playoffs. I mean, they didn't win the division. And so Flores got fired, but so did six other coaches. Now there were two coaches that resigned. I think one of which probably would have been fired. It's one of those cases where you can't fire me, I quit. So in total, at least eight coaches were fired, which represents one quarter of all the head coaches in the league, yet the only one who is suing is the only one who's black. None of the white coaches are filing lawsuits because they can't. And if Brian Flores were white and was fired under the identical circumstances, there would be no lawsuit. And in fact, how many other coaches did the New York Giants and the Denver Broncos interview and not offer jobs to? The white candidates aren't suing based on racial discrimination, but the black candidate is. Now, my concern here, and the reason I really want to talk about this, is not about the NFL. The NFL is going to be fine. The owners are very rich. I think they're going to end up paying Flores off. They're going to settle this case. It's not going to go to court, and he's going to get a big payday, and they're going to be fine. And maybe the NFL will do something else to virtue signal how much they don't like discrimination. You know, just like the fact that they put this rule in place, and this is part of the lawsuit. About 20 years ago, I think, the NFL adopted what they call the Rooney Rule. And based on that rule, before an NFL team is allowed to hire a new head coach, they have to interview an outside minority and give that minority coach a shot at the job. And of course, they would do that anyway. As I said earlier, these owners want to win. They've got big egos. You're talking about billionaires who really want to impress the other billionaires. They want to win. That's why they buy these sports franchises. They're generally football fans and they got big egos and they want to win. They want to win Super Bowls. And so they want the best players. They want the best coaches. So having a rule that requires you to interview minority candidates is ridiculous because if there were qualified minority candidates they would be interviewed anyway. But the problem is, what if you've already decided on a candidate who you think is the best for the job and that guy happens to be white? Well, you can't hire him unless you go through the motions of 
interviewing a black guy. And that's what happened with Flores. And he may be upset. I mean, he may realize that he really didn't have a shot at these positions, but he was being interviewed anyway because these teams had to comply with the rules. But that's the fault of the stupid rule. Now, of course, he had an opportunity there. Maybe Flores could have knocked their socks off and said, you know what? I know you've already decided on this other coach, but you know what? I think I'm a better candidate. I think I'm actually better. Give me a shot and here's why. So he had the opportunity to present his case, which he might not have otherwise had, But if he wasn't able to persuade the owner to hire him, it's because he wasn't able to persuade the owner that he would do a better job coaching the team. Because there's no way the owner refused to hire him because he was black. That is just pure nonsense. I mean, even if there was a racist NFL team owner, and maybe there is, I don't know, there could be. And let's say there is the owner is going to put his racism aside when it comes to hiring players and coaches. Because what's more important than his racism is winning. A winning team makes more money, they sell more tickets, they sell more merchandise, and it's more glory for the owner. So if you're a racist, you're going to put all that aside, you're going to hold your racist nose, and you're going to hire the best players and the best coaches, even if they're black. You know, what if there was a racist NFL owner and he just decided, I'm only going to hire white players. Personally, I think if he wants to do that, he should be allowed to. If he wants to be that stupid and he only wants to hire white guys, let him try. What would happen? The guy would lose every game. The team would go 0-17. In fact, they would be blown out if they had to exclude all of the African-American players. There's no way they could feel the competitive team. I mean, first of all, they'd have no defense. There'd be no way they can defend against the long pass because they're not going to have any quarterbacks who can cover the wide receivers. They would get open every time. Almost every play would be like a long bomb for a touchdown. That they have no chance. So there's no way that an NFL owner is going to do that because the marketplace will punish him. You discriminate. You don't hire the best people because you're a racist. You get punished by the market. You lose out to your competitors. The same thing happens outside the NFL. And that's what I'm concerned about. That's going to be the blowback from this lawsuit because just the way the free market punishes people for being a racist, the government rewards them for being a racist. And I've talked about this many times and I don't have the time on this podcast to really get into it again. But what is the reward that you get from not hiring African-Americans or not even interviewing African-Americans? The reward is you don't get sued, right? All of the football teams that fired white coaches are not getting sued. The only team that's getting sued is the one that fired a black coach. And so what kind of message is that sending to entrepreneurs who can see this and see how ridiculous it is? And, you know, I've watched a lot of news coverage of this lawsuit, and there isn't a single reporter out there who's got the guts to say this is all BS. Everybody wants to defend Flores. Everybody wants to point to the fact that there's only one black coach to conclude that the NFL is racist and that we need more black coaches. 
and they're afraid to say that it's all nonsense. We don't need more black coaches, just like we don't need more white players. I mean, you can make the same argument. Only 30% of the players are white. We need more white players. And you can pick it apart by position and try to look at the racial breakdown of every position and demand we need more white guys here or we need more black guys there. No, just let the free market settle it out. If there are not that many black coaches, there are actual reasons for that having nothing to do with racism. And I think the average person can see that, who's not a reporter and who's not worried about being perceived as politically correct and feeling that they have to virtue signal. What private employers are seeing is the team that fired the black guy is getting sued. The teams that fired the white guys are not getting sued. What does that mean? I don't want to hire the black guy because if I do and I have to fire him, I have a risk of getting sued. I can hire the white guy and fire him without the risk of getting sued. And there is a value to that, which means that whenever I'm hiring a black applicant, it comes with a cost that hiring the white applicant doesn't have. The cost is that I might get sued and lawsuits are very expensive and smaller businesses have the hardest time affording them. And so if you want to minimize your legal liability and not have to worry about being sued, you hire the white guy over the black guy. So government anti-discrimination laws are encouraging discrimination. Absent those laws, the free market would punish discrimination, but now the government rewards it because you're now less likely to be sued because you discriminated. Now, of course, people say, no, 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 you're going to get sued for discrimination. No, you're not. Not if you're a small employer. If you only have three, four, five employees and you don't have any black employees, nobody is going to be able to sue you based on discrimination, simply looking at the numbers because there isn't enough in the sample. You can't conclude that, hey, I've got four or five workers and none of them are black, therefore I'm discriminating, so you're able to do it. Now, if you're a big company with thousands of employees and you don't have any African-Americans, okay, now you can build the case. So the really big companies, they can't discriminate, but the small ones do. In fact, they have no choice. There could be plenty of small employers that interview for positions and the black applicant is their top choice, but they end up going for their second choice because they don't want to take the risk of being sued. So all of this is going to backfire. That is the problem. We need to get rid of all these anti-discrimination laws so that small businesses can stop discriminating and go back to hiring based on merit. And finally, I want to get to the other football story in the news. The Washington football team, formerly the Washington Redskins, finally has a new name, and it's the Washington Commanders. It took them two years to come up with Commanders. And First of all, I don't think they ever should have changed the name Redskins. I don't think Redskins is a derogatory term. I don't think it's the equivalent of the N-word. It never was. I think a bunch of white liberals kind of feign this outrage over Redskins. And the team stood up to all the nonsense for years and years and years. But then a couple of years ago, Following the George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matters, they finally caved into the pressure for political correctness and had to virtue signal by getting rid of the name Redskins, which, as far as I'm concerned, was a compliment 
to Native Americans. I think that when the franchise came up with that name, it was out of respect. They were glorifying Native Americans. They admired them, right? It was a way of honoring them. Why? Because they had qualities that they wanted to emulate on the field. They were courageous warriors. They were hardworking. They were perseverant, right? That's why you name a football team after something because you want to be associated with the good characteristics, the good traits that whatever you're naming your team after has, right? Think about the names of football teams. A lot of teams are named after animals, right? Lions, bears, eagles, right? These are strong, majestic animals that people admire. Look at the Super Bowl. It's the Bengals versus the Rams, right? It's not the skunks versus the turkeys. I mean, who's going to name their team that? So if you're an animal and a team is named after you, it's because you're an animal that people are attributing positive characteristics to. Some of the teams are named after people. The Raiders, the Buccaneers, the Patriots, or the Cowboys. These all have positive connotations, right? You don't see football teams named the Wimps or the Pansies or the Sissies. So naming your football team the Redskins was a compliment. It wasn't an insult. This whole thing was about political correctness. But what also really bothers me is this new name, the Commanders. And when I read some of the stories as to why they were coming up with the name Commanders, not that it's like a really bad name in and of itself, but it's the reason that they came up with it. They said that they wanted the team to have a name that represented the capital because, you know, this is Washington. It's the nation's capital. And so they took that very seriously because they represented our capital. And so they wanted the football team's name to be associated with the qualities and the stature of the nation's capital. And so they came up with commanders. And unfortunately, they're right, because we actually have a command economy, a socialist economy being commanded from Washington, D.C. Now, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But unfortunately, I guess the owners of the Washington football team recognized that the economy is being commanded from the capital. A more realistic name for the team would be the Washington bureaucrats, because that's really what they are, is a bunch of bureaucrats. But that's not the type of name that you want to have for your football organization. You know, a better name, I think, than the bureaucrats, because if you want to stay with the theme of red, how about bloodsuckers? Because that's really what they are. Blood is red. So how about the Washington bloodsuckers? Of course, they're not going to come up with that name. You know, there's a lot of other fitting names that they're probably not going to use either. Like, how about the Washington Tyrants? That seems kind of appropriate. Or the Washington Lobbyists. I think that would be a good name for the team. Or maybe the Washington Pork Barrels. But, you know, if you think about it, the best name potentially that preserves the red aspect of the original team with something that's very befitting of Washington, D.C., would be the Washington Red Tapes. But what might be a little bit more fitting, because it kind of sounds like Commander, and it's also associated with the color red, would be Comrades, because the Russians were red. And so how about the Washington Comrades? Because basically, in Washington, D.C., you really have a bunch of communists. So the Washington Comrades. In fact, why not shorten it to Commies? After all, commies is far more appropriate for Washington, D.C. than commanders. (laughs) 